You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Media. Jim Morrison died at the age of 27 and he lived a life unlike any other. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. Five would be the number of years he would front an L.A. band that matched up blues, frat rock, and poetic psychedelia. Another one would be the number of riots he incited while on stage in Queens, New York. Four more would be the number of years old he was when he felt the soul of another person enter his body. Another nine would be the number of seconds it took for blues songstress Janis Joplin to react to his drunken hijinks at a Hollywood party and put him firmly in his place. And eight would be the number of years he'd have left to live after a Florida cop threw him up against a patrol car and cuffed him for petty larceny and resisting arrest. On this, our first episode of 27 Club Season 2, riots, soul transferences, the first of many run-ins with Johnny Law and Jim Morrison lost in fantasy. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is the 27 Club. Jim Morrison, the Lizard King, Mr. Mojo Risen, the Dionysus of the Sunset Strip, the boardwalk gutter poet was writhing around on the floor of the stage at the Singer Bowl in Flushing, Queens, New York. It was a revolving stage, but it had stopped revolving while Jim's band, The Doors, 
were giving a riotous performance. Halfway through their set, it broke the stage like it couldn't handle anymore. Like it knew the gym wanted to break it. Like it knew the gym wanted to break on through. But to break things physically and metaphorically. And so, like it was just doing the lead singer a favor, it broke for him. It bent to his will. Lying on the stage, Jim's brown leather pants crinkled up like a potato chip bag as his knees pulled up tight against his chest. His purple paisley shirt was drenched with sweat, its lapels sharp and dramatic like his wit, his shoulder-length mahogany hair waving. It dusted up the dirt and the grime from the stage floor. His body contorted, spasmed, kicked, flailed, cried out, beckoned. The stage knew it, the crowd knew it, the cops, they knew it too. Jim Morrison was out of control. And he was calling out to every impressionable face that watched him with fear and wonder. He found himself on the floor of the stage in typically dramatic fashion. Just moments before, he had leapt into the air some three feet or so. His legs struck out straight like some maniacal arabesque. His wiry body came down hard onto the stage floor with a thud. The drums drowned out his fall. He leapt so far and landed so hard that a few of the cops on stage started to move towards him. Preemptive triage. But he kept moving on the ground, kept flailing. The cops thought better. The hippie freak was obviously doing his hippie freak thing, and best they keep their distance. Each of the two dozen police prowling the Singer Bowl stage thought the same thing. Hang tough, get through these last few minutes of overtime, and you can make it home in time for Carson and a stiff drink. There were more than 16,000 kids in the crowd. Some were up close and could easily see their gutter Pied Piper as he did his wild horizontal dance. Others strained to see what was going on from behind those up front. It didn't help that there were what seemed like a million cops on the stage. Cops that obscured a clear view of Jim. It pissed the kids off. And they were everywhere, the cops, standing still, at ease, ready to toss and tussle with any long hair who wanted to step to them. And just like the cops, the kids thought the same thing too. Fucking pigs. The kids in the crowd tried not to let the authoritative presence of the police ruin their enjoyment of the end. The long track that had closed out the Doors' recently released self-titled debut album. The chaotic, improvised finale, drawn out and unpredictable and explosive, was perfectly soundtracking this moment. The song was originally written about a breakup, but was so heavy with Oedipal torment and apocalyptic vision that it felt more likely to incite a riot than a reconciliation. Cymbals crashed down, the organ whinnied, the guitar playing, the Eastern-styled riffs caught some discordant feedback from the amp. Jim screeched into the microphone, clutched close to his chest, and nearly thrust it down his throat, a banshee howling into the muggy August night with wild abandon. Jim talked to the kids in the crowd the whole show, tempted them with liberation from their parents, teased them with a glimpse of an uninhibited life, shocked them with obscenities, and seduced them with his wobbly, leather-clad legs. They wanted the liberation Jim was selling. They wanted the freedom, the danger, the transcendence. It was right there on the stage, right in front of them, right past the row of cops. If they could just make it to Jim, touch him, be with him, they too could be liberated from the rules of their parents, their homes, a society run by cops with nightsticks. The kids said, fuck it. They rose up and they charged the stage. Jim planted the seeds before the show even started. Before the doors began playing, 
Jim had walked patiently through the crowd, signed programs for fans. A documentary crew followed the group around, and Jim made sure to flash his pearly whites wide and often. Kids reached out and grabbed locks of his classically gorgeous hair. He smiled, played nice, Dorian Gray on display. He wasn't too drunk yet. It was just the calm before the storm. When he took the stage, Jim was feeling good, loose, liquored up. He sucker punched a fan in the stomach as he climbed the stairs for the fuck of it and laughed when a bodyguard pummeled another fan, the pig taking his cue from the pissed pop star. The doors were headlining. It was the first in a series of shows at the Singer Bowl in August 1968, dubbed the New York Rock Festival. The Singer Bowl Outdoor Stadium was built just a few years before by the Singer Sewing Machine Company. The company donated it for the 1964 World's Fair. It hosted Olympic trials, it hosted boxing matches, and in addition to the doors, later that month, the Singer Bowl would host other big acts like the Jimi Hendrix Experience and Big Brother and the Holding Company, featuring none other than the hard-drinking blues singer, Janis Joplin. The doors followed The Who that night. The Who did the expected thing and smashed their instruments to pieces after a rousing version of My Generation to close out their set. After The Who blew minds, Jim Morrison spent the majority of the Doors set stumbling on stage, swooning, screaming. The booze, the drugs, the music, the thousands of fans. He wanted to take everything, make a cocktail of chaos, and catapult himself somewhere else, somewhere that wasn't humdrum reality. He angled for high fantasy. On the floor of the Singer Bowl stage, he convulsed and angled some more. It was completely foreign to the cops in attendance there to keep things cool, keep them from exploding. And they were freaked out, scared. And they'd never seen anything like Jim Morrison before. They had their nightsticks out, swinging, swinging at the kids in white button-up shirts and black horn-rimmed glasses as they bum-rushed the stage, charged the cops, added to the chaos. Suddenly, Jim was the least of their problems. The cops turned their focus to the kids and tossed them back into the crowd, nightsticks raised, swinging wildly. But they weren't the only ones swinging. The kids would go down swinging if they had to. They grabbed wooden chairs from the floor and tossed them into the air, tossed them at the cops blocking their way, broke them into pieces and hurled splintered projectiles wildly. Chairs hit not only cops, but kids in the audience as well. Heads opened up, blood rushed down. The audience was screaming, screaming just like Jim was screaming from the floor of the broken stage. The cops kept prowling from one side of the stage to the next as chairs flew through the air and skulls got whacked. The Who's Pete Townsend went home that night and wrote Sally Simpson for his new rock opera, Tommy, after witnessing the insanity that the Doors had wrought. Another witness, 20-year-old John Cummings, AKA Johnny Ramone, was blown away by the intensity of Jim Morrison and the Doors, in his own backyard, no less. He would see the Doors play live 10 times and translate part of what he saw into his own group, the Ramones, when they formed six years later. Johnny Ramone saw the kids in Queens bleed that night. They took their spontaneous revolution to the streets. They went beyond the Singer Bowl. The cops struggled to maintain order, maintain the thin blue line of authority. From the floor of the broken stage, Jim contorted his body some more. This was his fantasy, this scene of chaos, a teenage wasteland. His eyes rolled into the back of his head. He screamed something incoherent into the microphone and he assumed control over the whole thing. The kids, the cops, the entire scene. 
He lorded over it from his mind. He did this. He made this happen. He could do anything. He broke on through to the other side. Captain George Stephen Morrison was speeding down Interstate 85 when he nearly lost control of the station wagon. Captain Morrison wasn't one to lose control. He maintained control, kept it under his thumb, lorded over it. He was control. And they were halfway between Albuquerque and Santa Fe when he had to turn his body around for the third time and tell his four-year-old son in the back seat to settle down. And the kid was practically hysterical. Crying, breathing fast, worked up way too much for his own good. Captain Morrison would pull this goddamn car over again, so help him. The captain's wife, Clara, sat in the passenger seat and clucked her tongue disapprovingly. She echoed her husband's sentiment, but with the sort of satin-draped calm tone that wives of husbands with short fuses possess. Jimmy, she said reassuringly, please calm down. She took his hand in hers and squeezed it tight. But four-year-old James Douglas Morrison, little Jim Morrison, knew the racket he was making was for good reason. He was there, he saw it, he felt it. His father didn't feel what he felt on the side of the highway. His father couldn't feel that. His father was too hardened to feel anything, let alone feel empathy for another human being. But Jim could, Jim did. Little Jim Morrison had sat behind the glass of the car's back window, hands stuck to the pane, it was there that the soul of the dying Native American entered his body. There was an accident on the side of the highway. A pickup truck was on its side. Smoke sizzled from under its hood, just like everything else sizzled out in the New Mexico desert, exposed to the sun, to the wind, to the elements that blew through on their way north or south. Two men from the nearby Pueblo tribes were next to the truck. They'd been thrown from it. Another was still stuck in the driver's seat. Jim saw the carnage, this unexpected and terrible scene as they came up on it. He felt the tingle of electricity as they approached the accident, a tickle on the back of his neck. It was like the scene was calling to him. They had to stop, had to help, had to do something. Captain Morrison obliged. He pulled the station wagon behind another car that had pulled off the road, told Jim to stay in his seat and got out to inspect the scene. Before his father got back in the car to reassure Jim that someone had gone to call for help, that the authorities were on their way, before he told Jim that there was nothing they could do but continue on down the stretch of Southwestern Highway, Jim had connected. The connection was hot, electric. The eyes of one of the Pueblo men slouched on the side of the highway met Jim's. They locked in. Jim felt a vibration. His hands, still flush against the car window, started to burn up, got hot and the window fogged up around the outline of his palms. And then his hands and his arms went numb. Jim's vision went blurry and the air between the car and the crash scene suddenly flared like it does when heat rises from the street. Within an instant, Jim felt different. His father got back into the car and it wasn't his father. His mother turned around to give him a comforting smile and it wasn't his mother. 
he felt out of place, a wild child, bound to no one, stuck inside someone else's reality. He needed to escape, to find what was out there beyond the confines of the so-called family station wagon, doing the speed limit down Interstate 85. The Morrisons had come to New Mexico from Florida, where Jim was born in the city of Melbourne on December 8, 1943. Captain Morrison was stationed there, and when Jim was just six months old, Captain Morrison left Melbourne to fly Hellcats on aircraft carriers. Jim's first three years were mostly spent with his mother and his grandparents in Clearwater, Florida. Only Florida could give us Jim Morrison. He's the kind of guy you'd read about in the headline of a newspaper article. Headlines like, Drunk, shirtless Florida man harasses people in the park. Florida man allegedly gave alligator beer, enticed reptile to bite him. Florida man caught exposing himself in Walmart pillow aisle. Jim Morrison is Florida man. But it's a little more complicated than that. Jim Morrison was a revolutionary, a catalyst for a new confrontational style of poetic rock and roll. He was unafraid, violently handsome, sexually liberated, chasing transcendence. He was provocative, peered over the edge, stepped over the edge, left the edge in a swan-diving wake. He taunted, he dared, he said, fuck authority, he said, fuck the police. He beckoned to the masses, join him, break on through with him. But Jim Morrison was also a dilettante, a wannabe, a moocher, a phony playing the part of a sincere intellectual, belligerent, insufferable, pretentious, selfish, a walking 11th grade English class. Most of the time, he was fucked up tripping his balls off on acid, housed on a block of hashish, blind, stinking, drunk, almost always. Sometimes, his philosophy was poetic, profound, shockingly new. Other times, his philosophy was nothing more than a 30-rack of watery domestics and a bloated, bearded face to match. Jim Morrison sought fantasy, looked for an escape, a way out, away from his parents, away from authority, away from repressed societal norms that didn't allow him to truly express himself. It started with that soul swap in the back of the station wagon. His father would tell him that it had all been a dream, that Jim had made it all up, the accident, the horrific scene, the soul that somehow made its way from the body of a dying stranger on the side of the road in New Mexico into Jim. It was obviously a fantasy, Captain Morrison insisted. It was a construct of Jim's four-year-old mind. But for Jim, it was the truth. Whether or not it actually was true, it gave Jim a reason at an early age to look beyond his clear and present reality. And it instilled in him this undeniable urge, the urge to escape and to challenge all of those who came in his way. The urge would take him to Venice Beach, to Los Angeles, to New York City, to Mexico City, to Amsterdam, to Paris, and to many cities and towns in between, where he would provoke the youth and enrage the police. He would be told, don't do that, and then he'd do it. He'd be told, don't say that, and then he'd say it. He'd shout obscenities in public, and then when that got him in trouble, he'd start throwing punches. He'd stand in front of thousands of fans, reach down to the crotch of his jeans, and see how far he could get his zipper down before he was stopped. He was their buffoon, and he was also their shaman. He'd play the buffoon more often than not, though. He would find himself elevated to the upper echelon of Hollywood royalty, one of the most famous rock stars in the world, privy to those charmed life scenarios full of rock stars, movie stars, beautiful women, handsome men. And like a dog that bites the hand that feeds it, Jim would tie one on and try to fuck it all up because why not? 
Who was he, really? Why wouldn't he question everything? He knew he wasn't Jim Morrison, the person his parents had intended him to be. A Pueblo man dying on the side of the road in New Mexico made him question his very existence. And he never stopped questioning. What was reality and what was fantasy? Jim was empowered, felt godlike. He would do anything to challenge the status quo. He would roll up to one of those charmed life scenarios, grab the head of the nearest woman if he wanted to, and swing it like a ragdoll, even. That head belonged to Janis Joplin. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If Janis Joplin knew one thing, it was that this wouldn't be the last time she would hit that punch-drunk prick over the head with a liquor bottle. Asshole. She never called Jim Morrison by his actual name, and there was no dignifying that lumpy mass of delusional machismo, that belligerent petty fuck. Everyone knew Jim Morrison was a dick, but the doors were huge, so most people just let it slide. It came with the territory. But not Janice. Janice just didn't feel the need to pussyfoot around it. If it walks like a fuck and talks like a prick, it's an asshole. Dick. 
Janice was making a name for herself too, and even though she liked to get deep into the sauce, she didn't behave in any way like Jim Morrison. She was singing for Big Brother and the Holding Company, the San Francisco psychedelic blues rock band, and their second album, Cheap Thrills, had just been released and was about to race up the charts. Unlike Jim, Janice didn't have to create a fantasy world where she could do whatever she wanted. She could party, have a good time. The big bottle of Southern Comfort she held tightly in her right hand made that clear. Jim had been all over Janice at a party at John Davidson's house in the Hollywood Hills. Davidson, a former underwear model and a regular on the smash television game show, Hollywood Squares, huge smile, great hair, you know the one, was making himself scarce that night. If he was even home at all, these parties, they materialized at this house or that apartment in the hills on the strip. Half the time, you wouldn't even bump into the host of the party or the owner of the house. Jim and Janice were both too drunk to even really know who they were bumping into that night. But Jim kept bumping into Janice, thrusting himself at her. She would sit down on the couch and Jim would try to get on her lap. She'd attempt to mingle with a group of people and Jim would butt in, drape his arm around her shoulder and blow in her ear, try to slop his beer-soaked lips all around hers. Before you slip into unconsciousness, I'd like to have another kiss. Mr. and Mrs. Rock and Roll, he yelled. Not at anyone in particular, but it bugged the hell out of the small crowd standing next to them, who walked away to find someone less shithouse to mingle with. Janice was different than Nico. Not as shy, not as reserved, not as arty and aloof, and you know, not as European. Jim had been introduced to Nico, the Velvet Underground singer recently, by Doors publicist Danny Fields, and as far as Jim was concerned, Nico was way different. She appealed to the life-pondering existential poet inside of him, tickled that high art bone. Janice, Janice was something entirely different, raw, feral, fucking real, man. She sang like no one else and drank like a docked sailor. Jim wanted her, they could really be a pair. Mr. and Mrs. Rock and Roll was right, but first, First, he wanted to kick the swinging party at John Davidson's place into high gear. Next level, that shit. Someone give me a phone, Jim hollered. Let's call Jimbo and get him over here. Jimbo will kick this lame fucking party up a notch. He looked at Janice and raised his eyebrows a few times in quick succession. His face, a whole lot of handsome with a smudged nose and a gaping mouth that looked like it was about to holler one-syllable words or puke or both at the same time. It was a look that said, Hey, baby. You ever done it with two Jims at once? Jim was, of course, referring to Jimbo. And no one wanted Jimbo to come over. And when I say no one, I mean no one. Even the drunkest, horniest, most royally fucked up partygoer didn't want Jimbo hanging around. If you thought Jim Morrison was bad, Jim's drunk alter ego Jimbo was ten times worse. A sloppy drunk, a hedonistic narcissist. Violent, lumbering, oafish, on a path of complete self-annihilation that would raise anything in his path. And he brought out the worst in Jim. Just recently, Jimbo had shown up at one of the Doors rehearsal sessions. The Doors drummer, John Densmore, threw his sticks across the room and walked out, quit the Doors. Could handle just about any groupie, fan, business type, or musician. He could deal with Jim's other drinking buddies, guys like Tom Baker, the Warhol factory actor, and Alice Cooper leader of the L.A. rock band of the same name that had just been signed by Frank Zappa. But Jimbo, Jimbo was too fucking much. Jim and Jimbo laughed as John stormed out of the rehearsal space, his drumsticks rolling around the floor behind him. 
Jim knew he would be back, and if he didn't come back, well, fuck it. Then Jimbo collapsed, passed out in the corner, and pissed his jeans. Jim had met Jimbo in Los Angeles, in a moment of complete drunken stupor, and the two hit it off immediately. They both liked poetry, they both liked to shock and be provocative, and they both liked to palm fistfuls of acid tabs and guzzle them back with Herculean swigs from Papa Top beer cans. Plus, they thought it was funny that they had the same name. The two went by Jim and Jimbo, so as to keep themselves separate. Regardless, Janice knew that one Jim was one too many. She couldn't find the party's host, so she went into the kitchen and yelled at random partygoers to hide the goddamn phone. Rip the goddamn phone cord out of the wall if you had to. Don't let Jim call Jimbo. Not unless you want this nice Hollywood Hills home torn to shreds by a hulkish, slobbering psychopath. Janice knew she had to shut Jim Morrison down, which was bullshit, because she was just trying to enjoy herself. But she had to be the responsible one, as Jim continued to make a scene. It wouldn't be the first time this would happen. She sat back on the couch, knowing that Jim would follow. And he did. Jim sat down, looked Janice dead in the eyes, and said, I've got something for you, Mrs. Rock and Roll. Then he grabbed Janice's long locks of hair, and the move was quick and violent, and surprised even Janice. And this was something she would have expected Jimbo to do, but not necessarily Jim. Janice screamed as Jim pulled her face straight down into his crotch. His dirty blue jeans smelled of stale beer, stale cigarettes, stale dude. Jim had been living in his pair of jeans for the better part of a week. Janice could tell by the face full of stank denim. Jim laughed and smushed her face into his crotch some more. Total dick move, literally. Total Jim. But Janice had a better move, a power move. She broke free from Jim's clutches, red-faced and humiliated, still inhaling the rank funk of Jim's denim-clad junk and lifted that Southern Comfort bottle straight up into the air and brought it down hard on Jim's head, set him reeling, knocked him back, and shut him the fuck up. If there was one thing Janice Joplin knew, it was that bottles of Southern Comfort, they were good for drinking, sure, but in a pinch, they were good for weaponizing and for pulling Jim Morrison out of whatever fantasy he was in and putting that asshole back into his place. As soon as Jim Morrison took the cop's helmet from the patrol car, he knew he had officially gone too far. He just didn't care. He had been drinking that wine spodioti, all of it, walking sideways down the streets of Tallahassee with his friends en route to a Florida State University football game. Juiced, he catcalled at the girls and made fun of the football players. Dumbass thug jocks, bunch of shoulder pad wearing troglodytes, one tackle away from a head injury. They wouldn't recognize the passage from Nietzsche or Rimbaud if it was read all slow and remedial-like to them. Couldn't make heads or tails of a Howlin' Wolf song if it quickly bit them in the ass like smokestack lightning. And they weren't cultured, like Jim. Jim felt superior. Jim whistled, made some rude gestures, got his friends laughing like he was on stage and they were his doting audience. These friends were his new friends. The last batch, roommates he shared a house with, cut them loose after he routinely ate their food, drank their beers, and played their Elvis Presley records way too loud at night. When he crashed his roommate's Ford Thunderbird into a telephone pole, all of his roommates held a long overdue house meeting. Jim was out, out of the house. And now, on this night, with his new friends, the patrol car's passenger side door was wide open, and the cop was looking the other way. 
and the helmet was sitting there on the seat, begging to be taken. And these cops, these cops were just like his parents, just like his old man, and just like the jocks on the gridiron, a bunch of rule followers, slaves to authority, incapable of a unique thought. And they thought they could tell him how to live his life. His friends stood next to Jim as he drunkenly swooned from left to right, thinking about the ways in which he didn't like being told what to do, thinking about his friends standing there waiting for the next thing he'd do that would shock them and make them laugh. Fuck the police and fuck their stupid little helmets. He grabbed one out the passenger seat, stuck it on his head and swiveled around to face his friends. You're under arrest, he yelled, jokingly, and then made a jerk off hand gesture down near his crotch while oinking like a pig. The next thing he felt, was the cop throwing his body up against the squad car and the hand of authority that ripped the helmet from his head and put his hands in cuffs. Jim laughed and broke free from the cop's grasp. With his friend's gasps and chuckles as his laugh track, he got about five feet away, his hands strapped tightly behind his back before another cop tackled him and made him taste the asphalt. Jim laughed to himself as he thought, fantastic, my old man is gonna fucking hate this. He was 19. Jim would crash with his grandparents in Clearwater in order to attend FSU, while his family was in Alexandria, Virginia, or Coronado, California, or wherever the latest stop in the life of a military family had led them. Jim had moved out of the house, and although he was no longer a military brat, he remained a brat nonetheless. He was a brat partly because he didn't want this life that he was being forced to accept as his reality. He wanted to be out in Los Angeles, studying film at UCLA, out in the sun with the artists and the poets and the filmmakers. Fuck Florida. Florida was all jocks, all squares. They had better grass in California. And there was a revolution in San Francisco and Bacchanalian distractions in Hollywood. But that was a trademark Jim Morrison fantasy. And his parents snapped him out of it. It wasn't even up for discussion. Earlier, Jim had hitchhiked cross country with his friend, Brian Gates, a fellow military brat. Brian was graduating from FSU it was headed to California. Jim fashioned himself the next Dean Moriarty, and the road trip was his own personal on-the-road fantasy. He craved something different, something off the beaten path. He wanted to avoid the tourist traps of the archetypal American road trip and go straight for the strange, riding thumb. We gotta get to the fringe, man. That's what he told Brian one night as they planned their own Kerouacian odyssey. And then we gotta get beyond the fringe. In New Orleans, he hit on a Southern girl in a gay bar until her girlfriend stuck him with a knife and threatened his life. In Louisiana, they were hitching on the side of the road and picked up by a one-eyed redneck with a shotgun who had just gotten out of prison. He thrust a bottle of shine in their faces and with his fingers caressing the shotgun's barrel, told him to drink up. In Texas, one of Vice President Lyndon Johnson's cousins picked them up and brought them to the LBJ ranch in Johnson City for some barbecue. LBJ was in Washington, naturally, but sent his regrets. In Juarez, Mexico, they checked into a whorehouse, which went down pretty much exactly like you'd expect it. Jim and Brian stuck their thumbs out along the stretches of just about every highway between Tallahassee and Coronado, California, fucking and drinking and not giving two shits along the way. But when they got to California, Jim's mother wouldn't let him into the house until he cut his hair. God forbid his father see Jim's long curly mane. Who knows what he'd do? And so Jim was sent packing back to Clearwater, back to Tallahassee, and back to the last place on earth he wanted to be, Florida. And like he already said, fuck Florida. He had to get out. He had to make them force him out, grab a pig's helmet, throw up a middle finger at some football players, 
go drink a bunch of wine and make everyone else feel uncomfortable. Something would stick, something would help him transcend this godforsaken phallic-shaped peninsula. Maybe he'd get banned from Florida forever, and that would be just fine with him. And in the meantime, he'd have a grand old time just doing whatever the hell he felt like doing. He'd get himself banned, and then some. Not only Florida, but just about every other major city in the country would find itself seduced and then burned by Jim Morrison in the years to come. He would be loved, and then, just as quickly, he would be hated. He would just float on through, do what he wanted, close his eyes and picture himself living that fantasy. Fuck everyone else's reality. But first, he'd will himself to that place that offered an idyllic backdrop for that fantasy. California. He'd make it to the Golden State sooner than he thought. He'd walk that beach, soak up the sun. His mother wouldn't be able to tell him to cut his hair. He'd get so famous that even the pigs couldn't keep him down. In California, he would find strips upon strips of acid tabs. He'd find bottles to drown in. He'd find three guys who would provide a jazz carnival backbeat to the songs in his head. Songs that, as a 19-year-old in Florida, he didn't even know existed yet within him. But first, when he finally got to California, he would find a world ready to riot. People took to the streets. Los Angeles would be on fire. And so would Jim Morrison's fantasy. I'm Jake Brennan, and this the 27 Club. All right, the 27 Club is scored and co-written by myself, Jake Brennan. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer and editor on the show. Matt Bowden mixes the show. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. The 27 Club is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at DoubleElvis.com on the 27 Club series page. The 27 Club is released weekly every Thursday. Season 1 features 12 episodes on Jimi Hendrix, which are all available for you to binge right now, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to The 27 Club on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your shows. And if you'd like to win a free 27 Club poster designed by the man himself, Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for 27 Club on Apple Podcasts or hashtag subscribe to 27 Club on social media. And we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. You're going to want to give that a follow. So get out there and spread the word about 27 Club. And as always, you can find me blabbing about other crazy rock stars on my other show, Disgraceland. And you can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPod. Rock and roll. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.